All right, you may be seated. As I told you several weeks ago, in order to explain 1 Timothy chapter 2, I have to give you an R-rated sermon. There is no way to explain it in any other way. So uh, parents with, with children, we have a fully stocked children's church next door, fully staffed. If, if you need to do whatever you need to do, then there's, uh, that, that's, that's for you to decide what you want to do. Let's start right here. The word syncretism is a word you need to be familiar with. The word syncretism, uh, you can look it up later this week on any dictionary. It means to merge uh, elements of different religions together. Say, let's sync up our calendars, or let's sync up, let's get on the same page. Syncretism is the merging of maybe some Judaism with some idolatry, with some Christianity. Syncretism has been practiced just about everywhere that Christianity has spread throughout the world over these 2,000 years. Uh, When people believe on Jesus Christ and come into the body of Christ, they don't drop all of their baggage overnight. And so, for example, when we're ministering in India, people who have village gods and family gods, an idol in their own home, it's very difficult to figure out what are we going to do with our family idol here on the wall Uh, or the family idol in the courtyard out here that we worship, now that we believe on Jesus Christ, what should we do with this? And uh, uh, in uh, one context in particular in India, what we do is when they're ready to, we we don't make them destroy it until they're ready to be baptized. But when they're ready to be baptized in Asia, we'll make them take the idol out into the street in front of their house, smash it into pieces and burn it. Now, you don't think that your Hindu neighbors are going to get upset about that or your kinfolk that live all around you in a tribal context. When you burn their God, smash it in pieces and burn it in front of your house and say it's no longer a God to me, it's nothing. I'm following Jesus Christ and then you get baptized later that day. It makes quite a big deal. In other words, you talk about sticking your neck out to be what you are. That's what we're talking about. And constantly, whether it was Jews getting saved, bringing their Judaism back into Christianity, Paul is constantly speaking against the practice of syncretism. The book of Galatians, the whole book is about this, that the people who were freed from the law, they were, they were Jews who got saved, then told all of the people in the church, we're going to bring some of our Judaism back into the New Testament church. And what they began to teach at, in, in the church at Galatia was that all the men had to be circumcised in order to be born-again believers. Because you had to be circumcised to be a Jew. All the first Christians were Jews. Therefore, here's their thinking, therefore all men have to be circumcised in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, a cutting in your secret place has nothing to do with your salvation. Can we all agree on that? Bible talks more about circumcision, the cutting of your foreskin, than it does the word grace in the New Testament. That's how bad syncretism was in the first century, okay? Jesus' biography, the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Acts of the Apostles, what his Jesus' disciples did after Jesus left, and then the other books, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, Titus, Timothy, all of that has to do with this right here. How we deal with our baggage in the church, how we get along with each other, that's what those epistles, those letters are, are really about. It's dealing with Christian life, and for their context, it was how to deal with Christian life in a world filled with Judaism, 
Gnosticism, and idolatry. Now that we come into the New Testament church, what do we do with all of our... Like, I can't gather with my family for Passover. We've been doing that since I was like this big. All my life, I remember gathering at the table for Passover with my family. And Paul says, yeah, but you're bored again now. You don't, have to do, you don't have to observe days anymore. You don't have to observe those religious holidays anymore. You can if you want, but it doesn't matter because they're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ and you're not keeping the law. But can you imagine how hard it was to let go of that? It was a family tradition. Now that's what syncretism is. It's saying don't merge anything with salvation as you understand it in the book of Romans coming to the gospel by faith, through grace, born again because of the finished work of Christ. You don't have to mix anything with that of your own works. That's syncretism. Stop doing it. Okay? Now with that background, let's answer the five questions every church has to answer. Are spiritual gifts assigned by gender? No. Are women in roles of leadership in the Bible? Yes. Are women in the same roles of leadership as men? Yes. We've already seen that women are serving from apostle to deacon to home church pastor, all of these things. Are restrictions placed on women's roles in ministry? Well, there are two apparent restrictions. At least that's what we were all taught in seminary. Two apparent restrictions. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which I dealt with last week. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, which we're going to deal with this morning. So let's deal with 1 Timothy. Let's examine the second passage that appears to place a restriction on women's roles. And let's determine if that restriction has a very specific cultural context. And then we can ask ourselves, is that context our context? Does that apply to us, therefore? And if it does, we'll apply it right here at Cornerstone. And if it doesn't, then we won't. Now, again, I've spoken to you because on this topic in particular is a topic where the brethren seem to take a verse as a proof text, tear it out of its context, the passage and setting in which it was written, and try to overlay it 2019 in Western civilization in North Texas on you, and you can't proof text in that way. It doesn't work, and I've already showed you that. Now, this is our sixth week together on this on this topic. So let me give you the context both for the book of Ephesians written to the people in Ephesus and the context for first and second Timothy who was the pastor of the church of Ephesus. So Ephesians and first and second Timothy are connected because one is a letter from Paul to the pastor, one is a letter directly to the church, but it's the same group of people. Does that make sense? So Ephesians, the book, and First and Second Timothy are connected, and they're also connected to the book of Acts, where it's chronolog- chron- chron- chronicling? chronicling the Acts of the Apostles when Paul first went to Ephesus, and I'll read it for you in just a moment. Let me give you the cultural background. Once upon a time, there was a group of Amazons who lived in a region near the Black Sea. And uh, if you don't know what Amazons are, it's a society that was built uh, by a female-dominated Amazonian culture. If you think that's a thing of myths and legends, you are incorrect. It's a historical fact, uh, and it's where you get the opening scenes of the Wonder Woman movie. If you want to know what an Amazon culture might look like, uh, those fantasies were built on some fact there were culture, a culture of Amazons, not at the Amazon River in South America, 
there was a group of Amazons living particularly by the Black Sea in the region that you know today as Turkey back then, Asia Minor. It's a female-dominated culture. The definition of an Amazon is a tall, strong, athletic woman warrior. Just thinking Wonder Woman in your brain and you will have locked on to what an Amazon culture is all about. Now, unlike the movie though, uh, the, uh, there were obviously men that existed in the Amazon culture. You can't <laughs> perpetuate a society without them, if you understand what I'm saying. There were obviously men in their culture, but the men in the Amazon society were viewed as tools of society. Gosh, what's the modern movie? It just popped into my mind. It's not in my notes. Uh, where nobody can have a baby and suddenly they find out people can have a baby and they make Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale, that's what it is. Uh, where a society gets to a place where it needs women to perpetuate society. And so they become wards of the state, essentially. Well, the Amazons, is, they're not quite that, but you're beginning to get the idea. They needed men in their society, but they were basically viewed as blunt instruments. They were for female sexual pleasure. Uh, they were for the procreation of the society. And in the Amazon culture that exists, especially the one that existed in, in Asia Minor, on the border of Europe there, the men were giving all of the domestic duties. It was the men who did the cooking. It was the men who did the cleaning. It was the men who watched the children. It was a complete role reversal of what you might know from Western culture. In their culture, the women subjugated the men, dominated the men, enslaved them, and humiliated them. The women were especially dominant in the area of religion and in the area of worship. They worshipped a female deity, uh, not a male god, obviously. In an Amazon culture, you've got to have a female god. So they worshipped a female idol, a female deity, uh, she evolved over time, but she, her first name is Mother God. And we've got a picture. If you go to the internet, you can find the image of Mother God. They've dug up uh, uh, images in this region. This is what they worshipped. Her breasts are full of milk. You can see the baby's head crowning coming out of her womb right now. She is the goddess of fertility, the goddess of childbirth. Uh, it's a, it's, this is womanhood. That's what we're, we're worshipping womanhood, if you would. And Mother God, this is a way, way old ancient uh, practice to worship Mother God. In this culture of the Amazons, girls didn't grow up playing with a Barbie doll. They grew up playing with a Mother God doll. They still have them in this region of the world today where you can find pictures of Mother God dolls with full breasts, very obviously female, and it becomes the thing the little kids play with. And this is how they are taught about their culture and how the female dominance of the culture is passed from, from mother to daughter. The group of Amazons, this one in particular, this group of, of Amazons in their culture migrated south down to Asia Minor. Okay, they, they, the whole tribe began to migrate south. And when they did, they took Mother God, their idol, and they placed it in a, in a prominent oak tree. This happens all over Asia, even right now. When we get there, Jeremy and I will see the idols in the trees, in the prominent intersections, in downtown, at the roundabouts, wherever there's a major central focal point and there's a giant tree, there will be idols right there. Okay? They put the mother god in the big oak tree in the center of what became 
Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. And this is how the worship began in the city of Ephesus. It was brought from these people who put their God in that oak tree. And the whole society was built around this. Now, it became the focal point of everything in the city of Ephesus. Now, Mother God evolved over time. Uh, It's a pretty ugly statue, you know what I'm saying? And over time, they began to modernize the Mother God statue. Uh, It turned into, give me the next one. It really turned into something like this and something like this and became something like this, okay? It's all the same goddess. Uh, The Romans and Greeks had two different names for this goddess, Diana, which is in your King James Bibles. It'll say Diana of the Ephesians. In your ESV, they use the Romanized version, Artemis. Artemis, Diana, it's the same thing. If I slip and use the wrong one this morning, it's the same thing. But your modern Bibles use the word Artemis. So this mother god turns into Artemis, Diana, Artemis worship. And they begin to modernize the image as they go. These images in particular, she's wearing the temple of Diana on her head. If you wonder what that castle is... It represents the fantastic temple that I'll talk about in just a moment. You can understand why it's the celebration of femininity, can't you? Without me describing everything you're seeing, she's covered in breasts. And uh, uh, there's bees going down. There's triplets of animals all the way down. You can't see, but on the side there are bees. The queen bee and the worker bee. This one, you can almost see the queen bee right at the bottom of the screen. Uh, Damon's a beekeeper. He can tell you all about this after services if you want to know about the bees. The queen is everything. It's a culture dominated by females. You kill the queen, you kill the hive. All life emanates from the queen. The worker bees and the others can make honey that can feed the rest of the bees, the warrior bees, the worker bees. But there's only one bee in the entire hive of a billion bees that can lay eggs, and she lays them all day long, millions of them. All life comes from the queen bee. There she is, right there. And they took that from nature, you know, and they begin to merge that together, and there she is in her temple with her temple on her head. And I don't know how to describe everything you're seeing. I think it's self-obvious now what the worship of Diana or Artemis looked like. They got to this new version of the idol. They're going to build her a new temple in Diana worship or Artemis worship. The highest position was, you see, the Jews had a high priest and a group of men. Flip everything you know now. Diana worship was led by a female, obviously. She was the high priestess. They called her the high priestess of Asia. Had a very big title. And the whole thing was led, uh, the religious, the spiritual side of this was led completely uh, by females. It was dominated by them. In Ephesus, they taught their children in the public school system that Eve was created by the gods that Eve was strong and athletic and a warrior, (laughs) okay? So they taught their daughters and their sons. Eve was created first by the gods, and she was fantastic, the perfect specimen of womanhood, the ultimate creation. And a serpent came to Eve and gave Eve a supernatural knowledge 
and a supernatural ability. Adam came along a little later. He was born from Eve. He came from her. She is the mother of all living. And and Adam came from Eve. And over time then, Adam was confronted by Satan and tempted. And Adam was not the sharpest guy. He, 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 he was good to have around. He was handsome. Uh, he brought Eve a lot of sexual pleasure and will help her then build a human, human race. But Adam was not so sharp. And Adam was deceived by Satan. Eve wasn't tricked. She saw through the whole charade. But Adam was tricked. And Eve cared for Adam. And because she cared for Adam, she deliberately sinned with him. And that is the fall of the human race. That's what they taught. This is Ephesians. This is Ephesus. Now, Artemis is the goddess of fertility, which is fairly obvious when you look at her. Uh, she is the, the, the patron goddess of women's issues, particularly fertility, conceiving, and childbirth. And I'll explain a little more about that in, in just a few moments. Um, Artemis, uh, her worship, because she is obviously such an expression of sexuality, the, the worship of Artemis involved traditional sacrifices that you would think of like the killing of bulls in a sacrifice, okay? It involved that. But the worship of Artemis involved sacrifices uh, of a sexual nature as well. Uh, Men would come and offer their testicles as a sacrifice. And in the temple of Diana, they would remove them as a sacrifice to Diana. And the men would become women. Now, listen, gender reassignment is not a hip, cool thing we've invented. Things like this have been around a long, long time. This is 2,000 years ago. And uh, they would give up their manhood, if you would, in order to become a woman because everything about their culture was being a woman, being dominated uh, by a woman. That was the highest thing you, you could become. In their culture, in many of these Middle East cultures, young girls counted an honor uh, to go to the temple and have anonymous sex with a man and lose their virginity in this way. They're offering their virginity as a sacrifice to Artemis. Does that make sense? There's men coming and the worship of Diana Artemis involved sexual orgies in the temple and in the neighborhoods around the temple that were set up for this. And so... A young virgin daughter of yours, you might encourage her, honey, you need to go down to the, it's time now, you need to go down to the temple of Artemis and give your virginity away to some random man who's there to worship, and this is a sacrifice to Diana. This is a big deal. You need to do this for Artemis. This is awesome. I'm so proud of you. Are you getting freaked out yet? So women in general, most women, did a very similar thing, and they went down to the temple of Artemis, Diana, annually, on a yearly basis. You would go down, all of you women, if you were Diana worshipers, you'd go down to the temple of Artemis, and you would offer yourself to have anonymous sex with someone as a sacrifice to the goddess, you know, as an expression of your worship. Uh, it it, It was all connected together. The temple of Artemis employed hundreds. The estimates go as high as 1,000 prostitutes. Most of them were slaves that were purchased by the temple 
and forced into prostitution. Both men and women uh, were forced into prostitution as slaves in order to minister to those who come to worship. If you can understand what I'm saying. And you're thinking, wow, this is pretty way out there. Yeah, but here's what you need to know. This is not isolated. What I'm describing right now to you is reflective of every ancient culture. Every ancient religion looks very similar to this in that they all include perverted expressions of sex as a part of the worship act. And I could take you culture by culture to the Egyptians. This is what the worship of Isis looked like. I could take you to Babylon. This is what the worship of, Art of, of uh, Semiramis looked like. Uh, I could take you to Rome. This is what the worship of Aphrodite and Venus looked like. I could take you to Greece. I mean, it's all, every culture that is idolatrous and pagan. Uh, I, I'm going to show Jeremy a few things when we get to Nepal next week. Uh, that will help him understand passages like this. This is still being played out right now, this morning, on the other side of the world. A different version where they're worshiping the male organ on the other side of the world right now as a part of another religion. It's, uh, you're saying, this just blows my mind. This is the norm. Listen, this is what King David was dealing with. This is what Solomon got actually involved in himself when Solomon let his idolatrous wives take him up to the groves and build places for Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth is a female sex god of the Canaanites. And Solomon actually worshipped with his wives this goddess in some of these manners. Now, let me make it even worse. To complicate matters even more than they're already complicated. Some Jews in the diaspora, and I don't have time to give a history lesson, but the Jews were dispersed when Rome invaded and taking slaves to all four corners of the world. But in the dispersion, in the diaspora, uh, a group of Jews started a religion called Gnosticism in the same era. And the Jews of the diaspora took some elements of Judaism, some elements of the pagan land in which they lived, some elements of Christianity that they had heard about, and they practiced a form of syncretism, that merged elements from multiple different religions together. Their uh, version of syncretism took something from Judaism, something from Christianity, and the sexual perversions of the idolatrous countries into which they were taken captive, and they mixed them together as a part of a religious expression. And if you don't know what Gnosticism is, this is what brings you the Da Vinci Code. Higher knowledge, secret knowledge, only a handful of people know the real mysteries and they've been hiding them down through history and Mary Magdalene's really the lover of Jesus and, and all of this kind of stuff. This is Gnosticism. And Gnosticism just merges in syncretism the sexual perversions with Judaism and, and Christianity. And in their religious worship... Uh, they all practice some form of sexual perversions as an expression of their religious uh, experience. Though they taught, almost all of these religions taught, that getting pregnant, uh, the Gnostics in particular said to get pregnant is to defile yourself. And so getting pregnant was really frowned upon and in some groups forbidden. 
And, and so although they were practicing all of this sexuality in the worship, uh, they, they, they tried to avoid impregnation by practicing coitus interruptus. And that was the norm of these uh, Gnostics. The Gnostics really confused the matter uh, in, in the, the Near East uh, and in Asia Minor. And they took these religions and merged them together and practiced, one particular group practiced a communion-like ceremony where the Gnostics would smear their hands with menstrual blood and with semen and they will consume the menstrual blood and the semen as the blood and the body of Jesus Christ in a communion-like syncretism service. In this particular group of Gnostics, whenever a woman in the congregation was on her cycle, they would extract her menstrual blood and everyone in the church would eat it as a part of a sacred ritual in the worship service. Now, right now, you ought to just be ready to throw up, okay? They would extract the fetuses from the woman by forced abortion if she got impregnated in the sex act of worship, they would force abort the baby and they would eat the baby like you would eat a hamburger. They would eat the baby as a sacrifice to the gods to say, I'm sorry we got pregnant during the act. It's all about you. It's not about us. Now, let me just bring this little section of the sermon to a quick close, okay? There are several things that should be very evident to you at this point. This world is not your world. At least we should be able to agree on this much in the sermon, okay? That world is not your world. There are things that were happening in the ancient world that are grotesque and mind-boggling. You've never even heard about them, okay? And you never want to hear about them, okay? But you need to know about them because you won't understand Ephesus and 1 Timothy unless you know what the heck's going on in Ephesus and in 1 Timothy. This is what's going on. This is what their society looks like. Uh, Some other things that should be evident to you is that God sent Paul to plant a church in one difficult location. Could there be a more troubling place to plant a church? And you say, why did he do it? Well, who needs Jesus more than these people? You know, if anybody ever needed Jesus, it was Ephesus, right? Or Babylon, you know, or Cairo, or Corinth, or Rome, I mean, or Athens. This is, these are the people Paul went to minister to. They're the ones who needed the gospel. They're the ones who needed Jesus Christ. Something else that should be very clear to you by now as I've been preaching to you for four or five weeks on how Christianity over time, as people live out the kingdom of God, it influences society, and now we can let the slaves go, we can liberate the women, we can, we can take society to a higher place because of the influence of Christianity. And the reason you know nothing about this world is because 2,000 years of Christianity has brought you to a new world. You live in a new world. That looks nothing like this world, but this is the world looked like for 6,000 years before Jesus Christ. And for about 500 after Jesus Christ. This is what it looked like. And it took Christianity a long time to deliver the world that you now enjoy to you. Ephesus became the largest city in Asia Minor. Fantastic. 
the temple of Diana now. Diana worship, Artemis worship is growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And the temple of Artemis became, if you'll go look it up this afternoon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Along with the hanging gardens of Babylon and the Colossus of Rhodes. And this became one of the most, this was, there was no more famous structure in the entire world of the ancient days than that building right there. That is the temple of Artemis now. Now it's no longer a little old fat mommy idol stuck into an oak tree. Do you see how it's evolved? Now it evolved. Now it evolved. They've built their entire society. This is what downtown looks like in Ephesus. The entire culture surrounds the temple of Artemis. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. And the city of Ephesus is becoming wildly wealthy. Crazy rich these people are becoming because of the tourism and because of the economy that something like this creates for a community. This to, to Ephesus is what the Eiffel Tower is to Paris. I mean, this is what the, you know, you go to China to see the wall. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, you go to London to see what Big Ben and the, draw, and the bridge and the, and the tower. That's what this is. And it created a whole sub-economy, a whole economy uh, based on selling t-shirts and, and idols and spell books and hotel rooms and restaurants and taxi cabs and prostitutes and, and, and t- just, you just imagine it, you know, Diana on a stick, frozen lemonade, everything's being sold and people are making a fortune off of this uh, worship of, of the Temple of Artemis to the point that if you'll research it, the Temple of Artemis becomes the treasury building for Asia Minor. This is where the the money was... This became the the banking hub, that building, of all of Asia Minor. Now, let's get to the Bible. God led the Apostle Paul to this place to make disciples and to forge them into a church of Jesus Christ, one of the most pagan places on planet Earth. Let me read to you from Acts 19. This is where it records Paul's first trip to, to Ephesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he entered into the... Notice that Paul didn't find Christians because that's not what they called themselves in these days. They found disciples. And Paul found a few disciples there in Ephesus. And he said, okay, you're my people. Let's go. We're going to start right here. And you and I are going to make disciples who make disciples. And Timothy, my disciple, is with me. And, and Paul, uh, it, let's go. We're going to gather together and we're going to start a church and we're going to start making disciples. Verse 8. And he entered into the synagogue and for three months, Paul is at Ephesus now for three months speaking boldly in the synagogue, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him and reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So they got kicked out of the synagogue. He had to go rent another hall, and they began to teach about Jesus Christ there. Ten. This continued for two years. Now, Paul was in Ephesus between two and three, more than two, but maybe not quite three, but between two and three years he spent here with them so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now let me just pause here. You ask me, do you believe in miracles? I absolutely do. Do you believe there are still miracles? I absolutely do. You say, well, why don't we see them in Fort Worth? Because this is not your world. Now I'm not saying you can't see one in Fort Worth. God do whatever God wants to do. 
But miracles especially show up in places where they don't have the word of God and they're pagans and they need to see a miracle in order to believe something. Your world's a little different world and that's why you see it much less frequently than these people on the other side of the world see it because you have a different culture. God was doing extraordinary miracles, verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs, if you want to wear the charismatics in America, got that. Call in today, we'll mail you a handkerchief, we prayed over it, you know, rub it on your sore and it'll go away. That scam that we've got in America, if you wonder how they, they didn't come up with that. That was happening way over here in the book of Ephesus. And when it happened over here, it was legit. It wasn't, it wasn't a money-making you know, pyramid scheme or anything. So even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched Paul's skin were carried to sick and their diseases left them. And the evil spirits came out of those people. Now, you're understanding the culture now, probably clearer than you've ever understood it about Ephesus. Those people now are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and they bring their baggage into the congregation of the New Testament church. Now do you see how we got to clean up a few things in our lives? Because here come the idolaters, here's some converted Jews, and here we all are together in the body of Christ now, and we've got our baggage. Verse, chapter 19, verse 18, here's what we read. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, is black magic, witchcraft, sorcery, People who are now believers in the congregation, at home they've got a whole library of spell books from the ancient arts. You understand what's happening? And these people who have now believed on Jesus Christ, Paul says, no syncretism in the church. If you're coming out of idolatry, let's get rid of all that stuff, okay? Does that sound like a good plan? Let's get rid of all that stuff. We don't need that anymore. Now you're a follower in Christ. You're, you're not a sorcerer and a witch and a... And, uh, uh, you know, that's not, your, that's not who you are now. And the Bible tells us that they brought those books, and together they burned them in the sight of all the congregation, and they counted the value of the books, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Let's just say that's a chunk of change in the ancient world, okay? That means when people were getting saved in, the, in Ephesus and coming into the church, they were sincere, they wanted to follow Jesus Christ and they were willing to burn their black magic stuff and walk away from their past and start a new life in Christ, most of them. However, a few of them are still going to hold on to their baggage and that syncretism is going to creep in to the church because baggage from idolatry is really hard to shed. And in this culture, it was really hard to shed for the woman because the women in this culture were the dominant when it came to worship when you wanted to get pregnant for example you ladies would go down to the temple of artemis and you'd offer a sacrifice in order to beseech artemis to bless you with a child and then when you conceived a child you'd probably go down to the temple again and you'd make a sacrifice and say thank you artemis i appreciate you you know helping me get pregnant you, you you're, you're the goddess of fertility and, and, and i thank you for then when you got close to delivery of the baby you wanted to have a safe delivery uh and I don't, again my time's going to run out quickly so let me move very quick uh, women's in, in women's health issues in the ancient world there's extremely high mortality rate for childbirth both to the mother and the child As a matter of fact the number one cause of death among women is childbirth i mean there you, you, there's nothing we have today obviously babies died at a very high rate and moms died at a very high rate through the birth process so when you got close to delivery, uh, Di uh, uh, Artemis is the goddess of a safe delivery. So this is why women came from all over the known world 
to give a sacrifice to her to have a safe delivery of the baby. So as you near delivery, you'd go back down to the temple and, and you'd make a sacrifice for a healthy baby and, and a relatively easy delivery. <clears throat> the culture and religion had merged into one so that the superstitions were passed mother to daughter and grandmother to granddaughter. And you can imagine if you're, now let me role play with you, you're born again. You've believed on Jesus Christ. But let's say that your grandmother hasn't. She worships Artemis, and so does the rest of your family. But you've received Jesus Christ. You're pregnant. You're getting close to your due date now. And, 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 and your abuela comes to you, and she says, Mija, listen, you need to go make an offering to Artemis. I know you don't believe in her. I know you follow Jesus Christ. But listen, for, for your abuela, would you please go down and make an offering? I'll sleep so much better at night if you would just do can you understand how this played out in the church? And so the people in the church are running back down to the temple of Diana and getting mixed up in this every once in a while. And Paul keeps saying, no, you, she's a dumb rock covered in breasts. She can't help you. It's a, it's a money-making scam. Stop it. They're controlling you. They're, you're in bondage to demons. And behind every idol is a demon power. That's what you need to know. Without me going into a long explanation. It's controlled by demonic forces and you're enslaving yourself in that. You're free in Christ. Don't go back into that. Stay out of it. So now Paul knew all about this because he had lived here for about three years with these people. Timothy was there with Paul as his disciple. And so when Paul finally leads enough people to Christ and makes enough disciples that the economy starts to take a hiccup because the idol sales are down 25% because everybody's getting saved. Now, do you see how a riot's going to break out in the city of Ephesus? And uh, it's all recorded in the book of Acts. You can go read that in Acts chapter uh, 18, 19, 20 right there. And so Paul has to leave Ephesus eventually for his life. And he says, Timothy, I'm going to leave you in Ephesus. You're now going to become the pastor. You're my disciple, and I know you, you've got a, a great gift, and I, and I believe what, I know what you believe. I'm going to leave you in Ephesus to be the pastor. Now, that's the background of the book of Ephesians and the letters of First and Second Timothy. With that background, let me go right to First Timothy, and let me show you the verse that's in question this morning. 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, a woman's not permitted to teach, she is to remain quiet. This is the verse that's taken out of its context, and this is what's taught to Christians all over the world, that a woman's not permitted to teach in church, she is to remain quiet. When you read 1 Timothy, I want to remind you this morning as I read it to you, you're reading someone's private mail. This is not the book of Romans, which was written as an open letter to a church and all of Christianity to be circulated around the world. This is a private letter written between a disciple maker and his disciple. You're reading someone's mail when you're reading 1 Timothy. They did not use proper names because here's what they knew. Now, if Paul really wants to insult somebody and rebuke somebody He'll call their name. If he thinks we're done and we'll never be able to move forward and he wants the church just to put them, write them off, he'll use their name. But because nothing's really private in this world, and I say that to our young people about your email, just because you hit delete doesn't mean it went away. Okay? 
uh, it's out there somewhere. And when they wrote a letter in the ancient world, they would give the letter to someone and he would take it to them and read it to them. Many times letters were being written to people who couldn't read or write themselves. And so lots of people read your mail on the journey. Does that make sense? It wasn't private. Okay. So in this context, Paul will not use their proper names because Paul's trying to build a church and make disciples. He's not trying to blow people up forever. And I hope that in your spiritual journey, you'd be willing to take some pastoral correction if you needed it in your life. Is that fair? And I'd be able to speak to you about something in your life in a very private way, and we could keep it private, and you could grow beyond that, and I as your pastor would never, ever, ever hold those past things against you and limit your service, limit your participation in the congregation because of things in your past. Amen? I mean, that's, that's the kind of the way we want to operate. You and, you and I both know there could be some things, especially regarding to children, that become a, a no-go zone, okay? And, and we all get that. But I would never say to you, hey, let's address this thing in your life and let's move forward. And as we move forward, I would never look back to you and say, you can't be a, you can't be a deacon because of this thing that's here. Or you can't be a greeter because of this thing that you had back in, your, back in your baggage somewhere. No, that's not right. That's not fair. So Paul doesn't use these people's names he's about to address because he wants them to be able to move forward and make disciples. He's not trying to blow them out of the church and d- destroy their lives. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to articulate? Okay, so uh, why specifically did Paul leave Timothy in Ephesus? This is huge for you. You've got to get this. Why did Paul leave Timothy in Ephesus? I'm going to read it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God and our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. This is why Paul left Timothy in Ephesus. To charge certain people not to teach false doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths. Don't, listen, all these Diana and Artemis myths, don't devote yourself to just nonsense, superstition. It's absolutely nothing to endless genealogies, etc. Can can you fast forward down to verse 6 for me? Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Certain people. It's a very tactful way to put it. Desiring to be teachers, look at this next phrase though, without understanding. Now you can't be a teacher. We got a lot of teachers in the room. Damon, you're a math teacher. You can't be a math teacher if you don't understand math. Otherwise, the kids aren't going to, you're going to hurt them. You're, you're, you're gonna, it's going to hurt them rather than help them. Well, in the church, they had certain persons teaching myths and false doctrine and the people who were teaching didn't had any idea what they were teaching they didn't know what was right they just were taking in a synchristic way some of their baggage from the past and bring it to the church and teaching nonsense to the congregation paul said in verse 18 this charge i entrust to you timothy my child according to with the prophecies previously made by you, that by them you wage a good warfare. And Paul uses this kind of language all the time with Timothy. Be a good soldier, wage war. Evidently, it's going to be pretty hard 
to get them to shed their baggage. It's going to feel like you're fighting a war. But listen, you're fighting the, the, good, the good fight, if you would. Press forward and stop the nonsense, okay? That's why I left you. So Timothy was installed specifically as the pastor of the church at Ephesus to crush the myths, to get their doctrine right, to tell certain persons who were teaching false things, stop it. And that means confrontation in the body of Christ. That means we're going to have to have some conversations one-on-one. It means I'm going to have to get up and teach truth. Now, that's chapter 1. As you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 in your Bible, this is where the verse is that we really want, want to talk about. In chapter 2, it's important that you know that the text rebukes several different things. 1 Timothy 2, first of all, rebukes specific men. And they're addressed multiple times in the epistle of 1 Timothy. But 1 Timothy 2 addresses specific men, a specific group of women, a specific woman, and then her, her and her husband, a specific couple. 1 Timothy 2 deals with a group of men. He's going to rebuke them. Then he's going to rebuke the women. Then he's going to rebuke a woman. And then talk about her and her husband, that couple. Does that make sense? If you know that, it makes a lot of sense. So Paul's first address is to angry, quarreling men. Now, I've decided to end this sermon in a different way. Uh, As I told you, I'm not trying to persuade you with my arguments. I'm going to let you decide what these verses mean. And I'll make it multiple choice for you this morning. Paul first addresses angry, quarreling men. Let me put the verse up. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now I want you to look at that verse for a minute and tell me what that verse actually means. Does it mean, A, that wherever and whenever men pray, they should lift up their hands? Does it mean, B, that wherever and whenever men pray, the hands that they lift must be holy. Or does this verse teach C, that male followers of Christ should be living a lifestyle free of anger and quarreling, and they should have holy actions that complement their profession of faith? Well, the answer is clearly C. It's set forth by Paul to Timothy. Because Paul left Timothy in Ephesus, why? To stop the false teaching and to fight against the idea that you could live however you want to live, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, fight, fuss, beat your wife, kick the dog, abuse your kids, whatever, and you could walk into a church or you could get down to dinner in your home and, and you could pretend to be so pious and spiritual and holy while you've mistreated everybody all week long and lived like the devil. Your actions don't connect with your profession. Uh, is, is that, I hope that makes a little sense to you. Be, be who you really are. The next group that Paul deals with is a group of ostentatious divas in the church. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Is Paul teaching that women should only wear apparel from respectable designers like Coco Chanel and Louis Vuitton and Valentino? I got a yes over there, I think. Yeah. Uh, Be ready to bust out the credit card over there. All right. 
Or is Paul teaching B, that women are not allowed to braid their hair, wear gold jewelry, pearls, or anything that is expensive? Or C, is Paul teaching that female followers of Christ should do their very best to make themselves unattractive? I grew up with a lot of these people, by the way. Their whole religion's built on this C. Or is Paul teaching D, that female followers of Christ should be more than eye candy. They should be on a mission of making disciples and modeling the attributes and actions of Christ. I believe the answer to this question would be D. D is clearly set forth by the Apostle Paul to tell these extremely wealthy Ephesian women that you are devaluing other less wealthy women by the ostentatious display and expression uh, of your fashion. Christians are forbidden to establish class structures within the church. That's very clear from the scripture. Further, the women were trying to find their identity in this culture and bringing it into the church, trying to find their identity in their elaborate and vulgar expressions of fashion. And so Paul wants Timothy to tell them that their identity is not found in their uh, monoblonics and, and, and their Christian labatos and their, and their uh, designer bags. It's, I'm not saying you can't have that stuff, but Paul said that's not your identity. Your identity is in Jesus Christ, and what we ought to be primarily concerned about is that we're living out a walk that models the attributes of Christ, not every brand name that culture says is important. Now Paul addresses a woman who needs to be discipled. Let's look at this woman for a moment. Verse 11, let a woman, the language changes now, let a woman... Paul knows who she is. Timothy knows who she is. You're reading their private mail. They've talked about this a jillion times. Paul was there. I mean, this is not a mystery, okay? But he's not going to put her name in the letter because the idea is not to destroy her. The idea is to help her get to the place she needs to be. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Is Paul teaching? Look at the verse. That this woman should learn to be quiet and submissive. Is Paul teaching B that this woman should learn proper doctrine and theology so she can intelligently and accurately exercise her gifts in the body of Christ? The answer is clearly B because Paul left Timothy in Ephesus, chapter 1 tells us, because someone, here she is, wanted to teach and wanted to get up in the spotlight and teach the people And actually she was teaching according to chapter 1, but she was doing so without understanding of what she was teaching. Let's read verse 12. I do not permit a woman, they know who she is, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Is Paul teaching A, he's never permitted a woman to teach or to have authority over a man? Now listen, in five weeks, I've already taught you through half the New Testament on this. Clearly, there are women teaching men. Matter of fact, the greatest, one of the greatest orators of Asia Minor, a pastor named Apollos, was taught by a woman. Now, is Paul saying, I would never 
allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man, or B, that women should never be in positions of authority over men, or C, that Paul is telling Timothy not to permit this woman to teach or have authority over a man because there are known issues with her. The answer is C. Paul clearly is articulating this to Timothy because Paul wrote half the New Testament in which there are women all over the place in positions of authority and leadership laying down their lives and underwriting financially the entire ministry. He said for three chapters in 1 Corinthians he expected every person in the congregation to exercise their spiritual gifts which included women in the context. Now Paul is telling Timothy don't permit this woman to teach because there are known issues with her such as her doctrine's not correct, she's teaching myths, she's never been properly taught herself through the discipleship process, she has a whole lot of baggage from Diana and, and Artemis that she's bringing back in, namely her domineering attitude. She carried it over from the culture into the church. She wants to dominate all of the men in the congregation. That's the issue here. Now, I can understand a million reasons that I could articulate to you. I want two more, so hold on. Of why you wouldn't want a woman leading the church in Ephesus. Can you imagine us having a... We're in Ephesus now, and we've got a woman pastor, and a woman worship leader, and and an all-female band up here, and we have female ushers. You know what? That feels just like the Temple of Artemis. So when all the visitors come to our church to worship on Sunday morning and we dismiss the service, all the men kind of linger here. And they're like, when do we get to interact with the worship leaders? Do you understand? You think of a lot of reasons why Paul would say, let's don't do, let's don't do that here. <laughs> because of the culture of this city, it sends entirely all the wrong messages. That's not what we're trying to promote here in the church. Look at verse 13. For Adam was first formed and then Eve. Is Paul teaching, A, that Adam was formed first and then Eve second? That Adam is superior because he was formed first? C, that Adam was made to rule over Eve because he was made first? Those are the three interpretations of this passage in the seminaries. So which one is correct? The answer is simply A. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to correct the false teaching and the false doctrine of the Artemis-Diana culture because the Artemis-Diana culture taught all of their kids and all of their culture the exact opposite story of creation, that Eve was created first and then Adam was made from Eve. Verse 14 And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. Is Paul teaching, A, that all men are smarter, spiritually superior, and natural leaders because Eve was deceived? That's actually what I was taught in seminary. B, that Adam was to blame for the fall of humanity because he willfully sinned. C, that Eve is less culpable because she was tricked and didn't do it intentionally. D, that Satan focused his temptation on Eve because she is the stronger of the two and the most influential. Or E, is Paul trying to teach that Eve was deceived by Satan, 
not Adam, he sinned willfully. The con- well, I'll tell you, uh, B is true, but E is contextually true. What the context is teaching in 1 Timothy, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to correct the teaching and the myths of the Artemis Diana culture that taught that Eve was superior to Adam in every way and that dumb tool Adam was deceived by Satan and pulled all of us women down. He gave the forbidden fruit to her and this is what got us into the mess. That's what they taught, the exact opposite of the Genesis account written by Moses. They taught the exact opposite. Paul is saying, Timothy, set the record straight. Teach the church to unload their public school teaching and to accept, listen, be like me coming to you in America and saying, you can take evolution and just throw it out the window. It's not true. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light. Guess what? There was light. And God divided the light from the darkness, and the light he called day, and the night he called dark. God said, let the dry land appear, and the dry land appeared. He called. I could take you through the Genesis account, and I could say to you, you kids that have been taught evolution, just throw it out the window. It's a complete myth. Not supported by science. It's a complete myth. The only reason they see it that way is their worldview. Okay? This is the same thing Paul's doing in the church of Ephesus. He's saying, tell the people, throw that worldview out. It's incorrect. Here is the correct order that the Bible teaches us. Let me give you 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Verse 15 is among the most hardest scriptures in all of the Bible to exegete to a congregation. Never has made sense to you probably when you read it. Yet she shall be saved through childbearing. The Greek word for saved is sozo. The real definition means safe, to save, that is to deliver or protect. She shall be safe, she shall be protected, she shall be delivered through childbearing. Is Paul teaching, A, that this woman will be born again because she's having a baby? Does that feel right to you? Good, because it's wrong. B, that all women will be born again if they have babies? C, that men are saved by faith through the gospel, but women are saved through the works of childbearing. Two different plans of salvation, maybe. Or is Paul teaching D, that this woman should be told that it's safe to have sexual relations with her husband, that God will bring her and her child safely through the birthing process? The answer is D. And you know that's the answer because when you read the next few chapters, now Paul is telling Timothy... The Gnostics and some of these people are teaching in your congregation that the woman withholds sexual relations from her husband. Now, you want to talk about torture. The men in the church of Ephesus were told, don't have sex outside of the marriage. Sounds good, right? But then the Gnostics came in and told the women, don't give any sexual relationship to your husband because if you have a child, you can't go sacrifice to Diana and Gnosticism teaches you'll be unclean. So the women were remaining celibate in the marriage, and the men were losing their mind, okay? That's what's happening in 1 Timothy. And Paul said, listen, tell this woman not to be spreading this. This is false teaching. Tell her, go enjoy her marriage relationship with her spouse, have babies, 
fill the earth with goodness, you know what I'm saying? Uh, you're going to be fine. This was uh, uh, trying to end a very cruel practice. And uh, verse 15b, here's the couple whose marriage is strained now. He says, she'll be saved through childbearing, but the language changes to they suddenly, the husband and the wife, this couple. If they, they shall be saved through childbearing, she shall be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Is Paul teaching, A, that most people are saved by faith, but this couple will be born again by doing good works? That doesn't feel right, does it? B, that this couple will only live safely if they continue in good works. Or C, is Paul teaching that this couple will be just fine without these rock gods and idol gods and superstitions in their lives? Just continue in your faith with Jesus. The answer is C, because Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to dispel the myths that were being taught and to relay to this couple that they should not practice syncretism and merge the practices of Gnosticism and Diana back into the church. Diana is nothing but a dumb rock. She cannot help you, but Jesus is the real deal. Just go with Jesus. Wouldn't you rather have a living Savior than a just dumb rock? You're making a sacrifice to a dumb rock in a demonic environment, stop it. Just go with Jesus. If anybody could protect you through childbearing, it's Jesus. Diana can't help you. If anybody can walk with you daily, it's God who lives in your heart, who is your creator, not some stupid idol. All right, let me close right here. I think you've got it now. There is only one prohibition, okay, 1 Corinthians 14 is not even a prohibition as I showed you last week. There's only one prohibition and it's not for all women everywhere to be quiet the rest of your life and not use your gifts in the church. There's one prohibition, it's in 1 Timothy 2 and it's for a woman. Not for all women everywhere for all of time. And it was for that woman in a very specific context. Now, now listen carefully to this. And she was not forbidden forever. In other words, he didn't say be quiet and she will never, ever, ever because of her past be able to serve in the house of God. She was prohibited from teaching myths and false doctrines and was told to remain quiet until she had learned. And if you go back and read verse 11, verse 11 commands her to be discipled, to learn. Well, what's the point of learning? You teach people math because you expect they're going to use it somewhere in their life. Amen? Listen, the point of learning correct teaching is that at some point you're going to make a disciple and you're going to pass that on to, to someone else. The implication about this woman is if that she would be teachable and we could get her doctrine corrected once she learns correct doctrine. Listen, it sounds to me like this woman's going to be a dynamic force for Jesus Christ because she's obviously not afraid to lead and not afraid to share her opinions. So let's give her some good doctrine and turn this gal loose. You see what I'm saying? And let her go out into the cities and streets of Ephesus and let let her go out there into her community and make disciples for Jesus Christ. Now, here's what we've seen. I'm at 10.59 and 13 seconds. Here's what we've seen. In 1 Corinthians 14 last week, Paul rebuked the men 
for trying to dominate the women. And Paul said, by doing that, you've said the gospel is only for the men. I'm going to reverse that and say you're wrong. The gospel's for all of us. You don't have a monopoly, men, on the word of God and on ministry. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14. This week, in 1 Timothy 2, now Paul rebukes a woman and maybe another larger group. But now Paul rebukes a woman or group of women for trying to practice spiritual domination over the men. Does anybody see a pattern here? Paul says the men are not allowed to dominate the women. You're not allowed to dominate the men. The whole point is we're to be in mutual submission one to another and treat each other with equality. Nobody should be trying to dominate anybody in the house of God. The point is that we... Jesus got on his knees and washed their feet. He said, you don't understand what I'm doing, but what I'm trying to show you is he that will be the servant will be the greatest of all. Serve one another with your gifts. Love one another. Respect one another. Now, let me close it this way. I'm not pushing. This has really been falsely said about me on many occasions. That I'm pushing for us to hire a woman pastor like me. Listen, that's completely false completely false I don't know that we're looking for a pastor I feel like you've got a pastor and unless y'all want to tell me about something that I don't know about uh, I know I've got gray hair and I get tired sometimes but I feel like I'm still pretty strong and got a few good years left in me okay so no we're not looking for a pastor and and I, I, I you know you hear the scuttlebutt when you do a sermon like that well, they're trying to be politically we're not trying to be politically correct we're just trying to be correct. We're just trying to be doctrinally correct. That's all. Just trying to follow the scripture. And what I've advocated to you from the beginning is can we just try to follow the Bible as best we understand it, admitting to you that some of the passages are really hard to understand. But I can tell you one thing's very clear to you this morning. Whatever First Timothy's talking about, it don't have anything to do with you in America. That context has nothing to do with your context. I can tell you that. It's way out there. And there's things you can learn by reading 1 Timothy that are beneficial to you. Like we don't want to put people leading who haven't first been discipled. Praise God. You see what I'm saying? You don't want false teaching perpetuated. And for all of you who lead a a discipleship group, listen, here's part of the clarion call this morning to get it right. And don't fake it. And if you don't know, come and ask questions. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from Timothy. But telling the women to shut up and sit down is not one of those lessons that you need to learn from 1 Timothy. Timothy, what I'm advocating this morning is simply that we recognize one another's spiritual gifts and treat each other with mutual respect, that every member of this church follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and allow him to transform us by the renewing of our mind. And when people are evidently gifted in some way, we not tell them, shut up and sit down. You don't have the right body parts to be a leader for Jesus. That's completely ridiculous and not scriptural, okay? So all we're doing this morning is saying, listen, if we would model what Paul is advocating, we'd have wonderful homes and a wonderful church. Because I think what every man and woman in this room really wants is you live in a home and be a part of a family where you're treated with respect and love and equality. I think what everybody wants out of a church is to be able to come and worship in a place where it doesn't matter what color our skin is and it doesn't matter what gender we are, we're all treated with love and respect And everyone's given equal access to the Word of God. Everyone here is given equal access to own your own ministry.
and make your own disciples for Jesus Christ so that when you get to heaven, you have your own fruit and you have your own reward and stand on your own feet before God Almighty. Listen, that's what we're trying to empower here this morning. If you'd like to be a member of a church like that, well, then God has led you to this place, I believe. You have an opportunity to join in about 30 seconds. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, then God led you to this place so that you could hear you're not saved by works and you're not saved by rituals and you're not saved by superstitions. You can walk under a ladder. You can go out on Friday the 13th. You can buy a black cat. You can, I mean, it just, guys, superstition should not control you. You're to yield your life to the empowering of the Holy Spirit of Almighty God and let God control you. Just go with God. I'll tell you like Paul told the woman, tell her, just do what God's, you will be fine. You will be safe. You will live a rich, full life for Jesus Christ. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If you need to be a member of our church, I'm going to ask you just to slip out of your seat and to come right down here and see uh, Miss Lee and one of our workers and say, I'm ready. I'm ready to take that step. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to call upon Jesus Christ right now. You know that you're a sinner. You know that God sent his son to die on your place and be your savior. Those facts you may know, but have you ever called upon him and followed through and said, I want you to be my savior? We're going to do it right now. If you've never done that, I want you to call upon Jesus Christ and ask him to save you this morning. Pray like this, dear Jesus. God, I'm praying to you this morning, ready to confess to you right now that I'm a sinner. You know already, but God, I need to confess it to you. I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. You said I needed to confess that, and so I do. Jesus, I believe what the Bible says, that you're the Son of God, the Savior of the world who came down to be my sacrifice. You died on the cross. You were buried. You rose again the third day to be my living Savior. And this morning, I transfer all of my trust and all of my faith into you I'm trusting in you as my Lord and Savior right now I ask you to forgive me of my sins and wash me and cleanse me and make me new and clean give me a new life in Christ from this very moment a whole new path of life before me Father this morning I receive you as Lord and Savior of my life now and for always Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me today in this place. Lord, now fill me with your Holy Spirit and let me live that life, that life of a disciple following in your steps. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you to stand to your feet. We'll close in a song in just a moment.